Good afternoon, you're on the panel, uh, NZ National. Uh, we have Anton Matthews and Janet Wilson. Product- productivity over everything else. That's what the ACT Party would do if elected and would set a target for New Zealand to be one of the top OECD top 10 fastest growing economies measured by GDP. Labour and national governments have neglected productivity to the point where former communist countries are now wealthier than us, David Seymour said, and continued to say we like to believe New Zealand is a rich country. We're not. At the start of the 20th century, New Zealand was one of the world's most productive economies. It is now one of the least in the club of uh, so-named rich countries. With us is Brad Olson, Chief Executive and Principal Economist at Infometrics. Kia ora, Brad. Kia ora. I was interested in this notion of productivity and uh, uh, how we were once and how we are now. For those who aren't familiar, is there a definition of productivity? What, what is it? Productivity now, look, the official definition, and this is a bit stuffy, but I'll give it to you plus a a more uh, digestible version, is a measure of how efficiently capital and labour are used within an economy to produce outputs of goods and services. Now, in layman's terms, what that means is how much effort do you have to put in to get your output? Are you having to do three hours' worth of work to write a report, or can you get it down that same quality report, can you write it in 30 minutes? Um, if you're using uh, a lot of technology, if you're using a lot of labour, what are you actually getting at the end of the day? It's sort of effectively bang for buck when it comes to investments and people's time. Um, and that's so important because over time we know that productivity is the sort of thing that long term leads to people getting higher real wages. Uh, and, and that's why for economists it's such a, a critical focus. It's, it's not sexy, it's not generally that interesting, but it is important. Ah, yeah, so for every hour we work, New Zealanders produce 23% less value than Australians or 41% less than Americans. And the Productivity Commission, they did a a report of this, actually I think it was July of this year, said that uh, we are not doing well on productivity where once we were. What's the reason or two, Brad? Look, I think over the last uh, century or so, the economy has obviously changed quite a lot. But I feel that New Zealand, when we look through the figures, we probably haven't moved ahead at the pace we've wanted to to keep up with a number of our international peers. So we might not have invested in enough good infrastructure in the right places so that we can move uh, goods and people around efficiently. Again, no use sitting in traffic if you can move people and, and get them working uh, without having to waste time. We probably haven't invested enough uh, into those emerging technologies that have been coming forward. So, you know, businesses that might not be using uh, the likes of online services or artificial intelligence, again, those things mean that you can do more stuff without actually having to necessarily employ more workers or take more time. Uh, and again, I think it's around those sort of skills gaps that we've uh, seen develop. And certainly the last couple of years, we've heard businesses that are saying, look, I really need more skilled people. Right. Of course, if businesses don't have them, uh, they can't produce quite as much. And that means, again, limitations, drawbacks for a number of businesses. And that eventually affects what they can pay people. Okay, let's bring in our uh, panel. Janet, starting the 20th century, we we're one of the world's most productive economies. We're now yeah. one of the least. Yeah. G'day, Brad. Um, listen, I'm, I'm interested in this whole idea of um, that we need long-term strategy and commitment to change, that we need to invest, as you said, in infrastructure. 
get, and I'm not asking you to be to become political here, Brad, because I know you're an economist, but I note that the, the Act policy doesn't contain anything that would encourage that kind of investment. It talks about cutting back on red tape, talks about cutting taxes to boost productivity, but the very drivers of that, which um, the Productivity Commission have identified, he really hasn't gone, they haven't gone there, have they? In any I mean, meaningful look, way. Productivity is a tricky beast at the best of times, but I think you're right. We do need not only, like I say, those long-term plans, but commitment from across the political spectrum in some of these areas. I mean, you look at the likes of infrastructure, and I feel like a lot of people would like it to not be uh, you know, political. In the At the end of the day, it is going to be. But a commitment perhaps to the level of investments that are coming forward, or again, improvements uh, coming forward for education. One area, though, that I would like to see sort of more bipartisan support on is, is how we up the innovation spending uh, in our businesses. And you look at the likes of our R&D tax credits, for example, uh, and, and that's something that probably should be reformed a little bit more, because Businesses often sort of say, look, they want to be investing in new technologies. They want to be trying something new, but they have to jump through so many hoops or they don't quite fit the criteria. And it sort of falls into the too hard basket. So I applaud the idea of trying to move stuff out of the too hard basket. But, Janet, as you've said, that needs to come forward with a commitment to actually make some of those bigger step changes. Right. Anton. Right. Right. Hmm. Interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about (coughs) this whole concept of productivity on my drive into the studio today and I just thought about like my, my own personal approach to productivity um, because when you're a small business owner you, you can't really afford not for very long anyway to be um, you know not very productive so you kind of have to have I know you said it's not very sexy but it is important for me yeah. like I know what I'm really good at and I also know what I really suck at and so, um, you know, I, I work really hard to make sure that I spend as much as, you know, the old 80-20 principle. I try to spend as much of my time on the things that I'm really good at that I know I'm going to get a good, really return, a really good, sorry, return on my uh, investment of time. And the things that I'm really rubbish at, I, I try and let other people take care of that, you know, um, and, and when, it, when it's in their sort of their wheelhouse, I let them take care of that. And then I think the other important thing as well is knowing what time, for me personally, what time of the day I'm really productive. So I know for me, um, between the hours of sort of 4.30, and I'm a, I'm a bit unusual, but between the hours of 4.30am and 7.30am, I'm really productive. So I get up every day at 4 o'clock, um, long before anyone else does, and I get through all of my mahi, Gosh. basically before the kids go off to school. Now, at the other end of the day, wow. you know, I've, got, I've got friends of mine who, who do their best work at you know, their assignments and their, <laughs> all their report writing at 11 o'clock at night. I'm out to it. I'm, I'm, I'm gone. There's absolutely no point in trying to get me to do anything um, after about 7 o'clock at night because I'm just terrible. So I think as a nation, I wonder, some, I wonder if sometimes we suffer from this you know, jack-of-all-trades. We try to do everything, and in doing so, we kind of overall our productivity is not very good rather than focusing on what we're really good at and then letting other people, other experts, take care of the other things. So we're not very specialised, if you right. know what I mean, and I wonder if sometimes that hurts us. I'm finding this interesting, Brad, because here, we're, we're hearing about productivity through the lens of a very, business, very busy small business owner, and I know um, how extraordinarily productive many small businesses are in this very country, Brad Olson. Absolutely, and, and I think that's the thing. This is certainly not a slight on, on business owners or business runners themselves. It is sort of a whole-of-system uh, challenge, and, and to the points that have just been made, absolutely, we seem to identify uh, a lot of these issues and not do anything about them. I mean, for how many years have we talked about not having enough nurses or not having enough teachers, and then next year we complain about it at the same time and go, 
gosh, wonder if we did anything about it. So sometimes where we identify those issues, we really should actually move past the moan, groan, problem stage and move to the solution stage. <laughs> but agree. look, you wonder as well, right, we've got some of these big infrastructure projects and, and they increasingly seem to get more expensive over time. You look, though, at something like, um, I don't know, I've, I've visited and, and uh, gone on Sydney's light rail system. Why don't we just find the bloke that did the Sydney one, bring him over here and say, <laughs> I'd like one in Auckland and Wellington, please. You know, let, let's not yeah. reinvent the wheel here. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Janice? Agree, Charlie. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, one thing that really struck out of me when it comes to um, this issue, and there's quite a bit of interest on this actually, is that how do we get our research and development up? New Zealand is capital shallow, ranking 26 out of 37 OEC countries on spending on R&D. You look at Finland, for a country the same size, 5.5 million, they are the world's leading suppliers of lifts of elevators you go to mm. new york it's possibly a finnish elevator it's quite extraordinary brad well and i think one of the changes that needs to come through one of the limitations on the r&d space is that governments are worried and, and quite rightly that if you make those sort of r&d tax credits or those incentives to invest too wide then you get some businesses that try and rot the system and sort of you know anything becomes r&d and i understand those concerns i guess though what i think about is that maybe we should be a bit more willing to accept a smaller level of of you know rotting that that happens in any system but we had a high trust model with the likes of the wage subsidy would we be better as an economy to have a small amount more of that rotting but more general investment or do you have too many businesses at the moment that look at trying to apply for an R&D tax credit and go, look, I'd like to, and I know there's a lot of help out there, but it's the last thing on my mind. I've got so many other things to do, it just won't happen. So maybe we need to be a bit more permissive. This is Economics 101. It's about trade-offs and what sort of trade-offs are willing okay. to be willing to allow. Nice one, Brad. Good, good on you. That's Brad Olson there. Uh, Jacqueline says, if we look at productive economies like Singapore and Israel, we have yeah. too many breaks and socialise that work too much. The concept yeah. of smoko has gone loco, and we need more head down, bum up, and less whinging. Interesting concept there, Anton. One of, yeah, well, no, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, sometimes we confuse busyness with being productive. I mean, it's very easy to, to yeah. run around all day keeping busy and thinking you're being very productive. Yeah. I mean, there's that old saying, you know, time expands to fill the t- uh, sorry, work expands to fill the time allocated to it. So if you think you've got a month to complete an assignment, then somehow you, you miraculously you end up spending an entire month completing it. Whereas if you're given, you know, two days, then all of a sudden you can complete it in two days. So I, I, I get it. He'd, I mean, my business is called Hustle Group, so trust me, I understand the concept of hustling <laughs> and getting things done. But I also think we need to be very, um, uh, very uh, pointed uh, around what it is that we're trying to achieve. Right. And, and yeah. just one of the things that you said early on, so, and I just want to make this really clear, yeah. what David Seymour said about productivity over overall, I just don't think it's a it's – a, um, it doesn't have to be productivity. Can I ask you the, straight, Anton? I wanted to get your yeah, point on it. Um, product Productivity, before we move on, um, mm. productivity over and above things like treaty issues. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm a hard no on that. Uh, I mean, it's not one or the other. Um, you know, I, the, mm-hmm. I would like to think that the business that we run uh, is um, – you know, from a cultural point of view, um, is uh, you know we, we we celebrate all cultures, but we're also very we're we're a business that's driven to make a profit as well. It's it's not one or the other. You can do all no. of those things at the same time, and so I just don't think it's quite that simple. 
Sure. No, and I, it, it, it doesn't have to be an either-or. It can be an and-and, right? That's right. No, good on you both. It All can right. totally be an and-and. Now, this yeah. is really, really interesting. I'm dying to talk to you and the nation about this. Tim's just uh, written in about half the houses and apartments at Fitianga are empty. These rich batches are often multi-million dollar homes, many with luxury launches. There are a few council homes for the homeless and elderly, uh, and I'm dying to hear about the sex topics. So here we go. There has been a big focus on foreign buyers' tax. Opinions every which way on whether the costs add up or whether it's achievable. But what about this? Taxing people for keeping homes empty in this country. One taxation expert asks, with a comprehensive capital gains tax being rolled out, what about taxing those investment properties sitting empty for investment reasons. Around 95,000 dwellings were considered empty during the 2018 census. With us is Dr. Ranjana Gupta, Senior Lecturer in Taxation at AUT. Dr. Ranjana, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a fascinating idea, this, and hasn't really been sort of talked about. Explain how you see this issue. You say that New Zealand is fertile ground from empty house tax. Correct. Um, Because empty house tax targets homeowners who let the property sit empty for a certain length of time. For example, in Vancouver, the land prices, the houses prices were increasing a lot in 2016, 2015. So what they did in 2017 is they started with um, empty home tax. So they defined in, um, empty home as the house or property which is not used as a principal residence by the taxpayer for six months of the year. Ah. Then they started with 1%, change it later on to 1.5, later on to 3%. And from the beginning of this year, 2023, they have increased it to 5%. And they are generating a lot of revenue from this um, tax. And it has been really successful. Well, Different countries, yeah. Well, okay. isn't that interesting? Vancouver vacant homes are taxed at five percent of the property's taxable value. Um, Janet Wilson, now a uh, guest here, says uh, you could reap because Queenstown empty homes are homes are a real issue. You could generate Janet Wilson uh, two hundred and fifty-five million dollars a year on an mm. empty house tax just in Queenstown alone. Well, it, it would have a twofold effect, wouldn't it? It would it would um, encourage people who who didn't want to pay the tax to to actually fill their homes with with renters or or other people, or make it into an Airbnb, for instance. Or um, it would drive those investors out of the market who are doing it for very cynical reasons. But the thing I would like to ask Ranjana is it, it, it's. The devil in the detail. How do you impose mm. a tax mm. upon upon this when you've got, for instance, people who have holiday homes, for instance, or are forced to relocate, or um, uh, they have to go away because of work? Is the devil in the detail in terms of the implementation of the of the tax? That's a great question. But look, 
if people have holiday home, that's where you have, when we furnish our um, tax rate form to the um, uh, district council or local council, along with that payment of rates, we should make a declaration that this house is my principal residence. My principal residence means I live there for more than six months, say, for example. Right. Uh, and yeah. then if it is my holiday home, then if I go there for a week or two weeks or um, two, three times in a year, then rest of the time, what is the use of the property? Is the property available for rent or air um, a, a BNB or what is done. If it is not used for Airbnb or other purposes, it is left vacant, then yeah. that property will be subject to tax. Like we can use the land value and charge 2%, 3%, depending on different areas. The rate could vary. Okay, Anton. Hmm. Yeah, look, I can <clears throat> I can understand why, especially in those areas like Queenstown and you know where there are housing shortages, it can be really frustrating to see homes that are sort of just sitting there empty when they could be opened up and used as as accommodation. I can definitely understand why people would be frustrated in those in some of those areas. But I'm just also th- talking about the holiday home thing. I'm thinking about batches that are actually no one's going to live there as a permanent resident i mean they really are in the middle of nowhere um and they are really only designed to be batches or um or cribs i think you call them in the north island uh could be wrong but you know um holiday homes and i just think it's a bit rough (laughs) you know to tax the um the holiday home that's been in the whanau for the last three or four generations when actually let's be honest no one's going to rent it for two or three hundred bucks a week because it's in the middle of nowhere um so uh, again devil devil in the details good point janet um I can definitely see its applications, um, but I also think we just got to be careful that we're not, yeah. you know, unfairly taxing people because I, they own something. I have one final question, Doctor Gupta, about the empty house tax. Would it be? You talk about Vancouver doing it successfully at five percent, taxing at five percent of the property's value. Someone just uh, texted me here. I have to check up on the John in Queenstown. Says twenty-seven percent of Queenstown is, is is empty. Do you think it would be easier? to implement an empty house tax than a foreign buyer's tax? Look, foreign buyer is different. Foreign buyer taxes when they are buying the properties and these people will buy the property. If they rent those properties, then, of course, they will not be caught under empty home tax. But if they leave these properties empty, um, then they will be caught under this tax. That means the properties are not available to people um, who want to have a rental property, and that's why there's a shortage of rental properties, or even for the buyers, there's a shortage of properties, because these people will be waiting for increase in prices. Okay, nice to have you on the program, Dr. Gupta. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Interesting uh, topic that uh, whether or not we should have an empty house uh, tax uh, $250 million a year could be reaped on an empty house tax in Queenstown alone, says uh, Dr. Gupta there, a lecturer in taxation. 27 past four. Uh, big response to this. So I have a question from a listener. Reasonable or ridiculous? Grant was in a supermarket recently in the eggs aisle, and most people open them up to check 
if any are cracked. But this person, Grant says, took two cartons, opened them both up, swapped around the eggs in the cartons until they had all the biggest eggs in the one they were going to buy and left all the smallest eggs in the other carton back on the shelf. Reasonable or ridiculous? Text me, 2101. You were dying to say something about this, Janet. I mean, it's not illegal, yeah. is it? No, you can understand the background as to why it's, uh, I'm going to try and not excuse it, but explain it. Eggs have it's, it's the one food that has increased exponentially so much in price, right? But it's it's cheating, isn't it? Basically, you're stitching the next person up, aren't you? You're stitching the next person up. That's dead right. That is dead <laughs> right, Anton. Well, totally. but the thing is that um, it's just an extension, isn't it, Anton, of opening the product to have a look at the cracked egg. And if you swap a couple around, it's just what you do. When you go to when you go to a supermarket, you choose the best broccoli. What's the difference? <laughs> I don't know. It's just a bit odd. I've just, I, honestly, I, maybe I, maybe I haven't been paying enough attention. I've just never seen anybody do this before. Um, yeah, look, I don't. It's not something I would do, but um, maybe I don't no. care about eggs enough. Yeah, is, I, don't they? Have, they've got sizes, don't they? Like you get a size six or a seven or an eight, and that's I don't right. Know, you just assume that if you're going to buy a pack of seven, that they're all kind of roughly a size seven. Well, well so you choose the mix. Great. People are getting very angry yeah. about this. Someone says the little <laughs> tosses. Um, Eggs, uh, says Chris, swapping out the smaller ones for the large ones in mixed grade boxes, shop shoplifting at its most devious, mm, uh, cunning, says. Cunning. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's just being a, it's being a good shopper, isn't it, Janet? It's being a good shopper. No, it's not. No, it's cheating. <laughs> it's it's you were given you were offered something, and yes, you checked it to see if it was safe. But then you actually swapped it out for bigger ones so that you are disadvantaging the next person who comes along and uses, takes so, that other box. So, so what? I mean, so what? You're choosing the bigger cucumber. That's You're choosing the, the bigger broccoli. With the, that's the problem with Aotearoa today now, Wallace, isn't it? I don't know. Right? Oh, here we go. You probably yeah, draw the line. There you though, go. You, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't mix, you wouldn't cross mix sizes, would you? Like, you can't, no. take a, you can't take a size egg and swap it out for a size 7. Surely that's crossing the... No. I mean, Janet's drawn a pretty thick line in the sand here. I tend to agree with you, yeah. Janet. It's <laughs> just All right. odd, though. Fair. Who's got time for that? <laughs> uh, broken egg swap, okay. Swapping size for size because you prefer brown or white shell is okay. Swapping one size for a larger size, not okay, says Julian. Okay. Swapping yeah. mixed grade for mixed grade is buyer beware. <laughs> I had, I had no. This, uh, this could be a, this could be an election issue. I tell well, you what, there's a lot yeah. of. <laughs> it could be. It could be. That you never know. You might hear that question on the one-on-one uh, -on -one panel debate, Zanton. Uh, what, <laughs> what would you, Chris Lux? What would you do, Chris Lux or Chris Hipkins, uh, when you're presented with a mixed grade um, uh, carton of eggs? Uh, you're on the panel, uh, NZ National. By the way, I've got a lot of uh, feedback for you, Anton, on uh, with what you, you should do to keep three tamariki. Engaged and busy on a long haul flight. Hopefully, we get to some of that. 